bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the January 17th, 2023 podcast. This week's episode is another installment in our ongoing So You Want to Be a Lightech Developer series. We launched this series to help real estate developers get a better understanding as to how the low-income tax credit is used to finance the acquisition, development, and renovation of affordable rental housing. Today's topic is an important one for all low-income tax credit developers, both new and experienced. We're talking about today, IRIS Form 8609. What is IRIS Form 8609, you may be asking? Form 8609 is the IRIS document that credit allocated agencies give to property owners evidence that the owner is eligible to claim low-income housing tax credits. Credit allocated agencies accomplish this by completing and signing Part 1 of the Form 8609. Developers, in turn, must complete Part 2 of the form and then submit the completed form to the IRS. And there's a form for each building that is part of the low-income housing tax credit finance development. They might be thinking to yourself, I'm a developer. I built housing. Why in the world do I need to listen to this podcast about a tax form? Can't my tax accountant prepare the form for me? Well, the answer is yes. You definitely should have an experienced accountant reviewing your forms 86 and 9. But for you as the developer, it is very important that you understand that you are responsible for completion of the form. It's important that you understand the implications of the form. Now, you might also be thinking if you're an experienced developer, I've built and placed and serviced many low-income housing developments already. I know how Form 869 works. What could I possibly learn from this podcast? Well, I would just say if you are an experienced developer, I do urge you to keep listening because I'm sure there'll be one or two tips that you learn today that could save you thousands or even millions of dollars. I would say thousands or maybe millions of dollars. Because if the Form 8609 is not completed properly, then you, as the property owner, may need to apply to the IRS via private letter ruling to correct the error or errors in the form or forms. This process alone could cost over $10,000 in IRS user fees, as well as an additional ten dollars to $20,000 or more in professional fees for assisting in preparing their private letter ruling request. Hence, thousands of dollars of additional costs. Now, I said maybe even millions of dollars because an improperly completed form can result in the loss of credits on a building-by-building -building basis. Now, let me also note, if you're not in a long-term touch with developers, but if you work with an investor or a syndicator, then this podcast will also be useful. As part of your investment due diligence, you want to be sure to be reviewing the Forms 8609 to ensure they're completed correctly and that they're consistent your tax credit delivery expectations. Now, in today's podcast, we're going to start by providing an overview of Form 8609, the information request on the form, and who's responsible for providing that information. More importantly, we'll talk about specific questions that are on the form that you'll want to pay particular attention to, to avoid potentially costly errors. We are very fortunate of joining us today for today's discussion. My partner, Craig Staswick from Novogratz Long Beach, California office. Craig has worked with many developer clients on preparing and reviewing their forms 8609. 
also led a deep dive webinar on Form 8609 back in 2021. And that training was so popular that he came back for a repeat performance and hosted another webinar on the topic last month. If you didn't get a chance to attend last month's webinar, I highly encourage you to watch the webinar recording. You can purchase the recording on our website at www.nevaco.com training. Navigate to the on-demand training course page. I'll also link to the webinar in today's show notes. Without further ado, I'm excited to have Craig share his insights with us today. So if you're ready, let's get started. Craig, welcome back to Task Red Tuesday. You were on the podcast a couple of years ago when we talked about cost segregations. Can't believe it's been that long ago. We're happy to be back on the show. It's great to be back. So let's start off with the basics of Form 869. I described it pretty broadly in my introduction, but please, I'd like for you to tell our listeners a little more about the purpose of Form 869 and how it's used in the loan visit cash credit transaction. Sure, right. So the purpose of the 8609 is really twofold. The first purpose being it's the state housing agencies document that they populate to allow the building owner to start taking local housing tax credits. So that's the first purpose. It communicates that the state housing agencies review the project and allocates them the credits. The second purpose is really developer driven. And that is to allow the developer the mechanism to make certain certifications and elections that they were required to make under section 42 in the regs. So thank you for that overview. And now maybe you could discuss the timing form 8609. When would a developer receive the form? I mean, a developer, obviously at the very beginning part of the process, if they're going for 9% credits, will apply for the credits. If they're going the tax and bond finance tax credit route, then they'll be seeking tax and bond finance either way you know, before they started the development or the renovation, they're in the process of lining up the credits. Then they apply, then they get award letters, but then I say at the 8609 then, when do they get the 8609? Right. So they actually get the 8609, you know, no later than, no earlier than place and service, but to provide even more detail about kind of to fine tune that date, if you will. What the typical fact pattern is the project is placed in service and has X amount of months to turn in a place in service package to the state housing agency. The state housing agency then reviews that place in service package. And if all things goes well, it will then issue the 8609. Timing by state is a little different. Some states uh, require the place in service package to be submitted within one year of place in service. And then you can generally assume they're going to take six months or so once they receive the place and service package. So the developers need to think about, keep that timeline in mind. And they're really motivated to after place and service hustle, if you will, turn to turn in the place and service package to speed that process up. So one of the reasons why the 869 comes after the place and service date is all the costs have to be pulled together on a per building basis, so you can allocate out the eligible basis and all the rest. And also the states have to do a financial feasibility determination as, and they generally will want the permanent loan to be in place at the time of that determination. And since once you place a building in service, you have to lease it up, you can get the stabilized occupancy, then you have to have the permanent loan fund that can all take sort of a number of months, but you do get to start your eligible 
claiming credits once you place the building in service, but you and are leasing it out. However, you may not get the form for 12 to 18 months later, which means the tax return has already been filed. So what are our clients doing in order to claim credits before they receive the 86 and 9? Right. So that does create a conundrum. You, you want to take the credits, but you don't have the 86 and 9 in hand. What do you do? Well, the, the good news is there is I, IRS guidance out there that allows for um, a developer to take credits without the 86 and 9 in hand. It's commonly referred to as the reasonable cause approach. That approach is, it's facts and circumstance driven. So that plays a large role in a developer's ability to take that position and take credits without 86 and nines. But it's, it's, it's very common because of the reasons you just mentioned of this timing challenge that these projects have. So thank you for that. And I would just uh, expand on that a bit by saying there is a process that the broader long test community has gotten comfortable with in terms of how to document reasonable cause and the various steps you have to do. And you want to make sure that you're traveling within the herd and from that respect and not from the herd so that you have a greater likelihood of maintaining your credits. Now, the another thing before we talk a little bit more details about the form itself, way back in the day, you used to file the form with your tax return, but you don't do that now. Where do you file the form? You file the form, it's a one-time submission now to the IRS LITEC unit, to the specific unit, and you need to send the original wet signature, the developer's wet signature, and the housing agency's wet signature to the IRS LITEC unit. Thank you for that. It definitely makes the tax returns themselves that you file a little bit thinner now, because as I mentioned earlier, you have a separate 86 to 9 for every building in a development. And if you do an act rehab, you have a separate 86 to 9 for the acquisition costs and a separate one for the development costs, for the renovation costs. So you have two forms for building. So you get into a 40, 50 building project and you can have 80, 100 forms or more, depending upon, like I said, how many buildings you have. So it could be a, a bit voluminous, That's but right. it's now nice that you submit it once to the uh, Irish unit. So now let's talk about the timing and significance of the form itself. Uh, I, you know, in the introduction, I talked about part one is filled out by the credit allocate agency and part two is filled out by the property owner. Maybe you could describe for our listeners in a little bit more detail what the two parts entail. Right. So it's a one page form and it's kind of split in half horizontally. So on the first top half, it's what is referred to as part one. And that part one is filled out by the allocating agency and it has key data points of the project. It's very useful. It's a good snapshot of the building, how many credits are on the building, what the eligible maximum qualified basis is, and some other key data points. And the key being that is filled out by the allocating agency. The bottom half is the part two, and that is the area of the form that the developer would fill out. It's going to be making various certifications and elections that are required under the code and the regulations. So I think I want to ask you that, get some more detail there, but before I ask you that question, let me back up a second and say, in the intro, I talked about the developers being responsible for the forms and they should work with an experienced tax accountant to review the form. What are some of the services that you provide to clients in assisting them in preparing part two, obviously you're not assisting in part one because that's what the state allocated agency prepares, but some of the services you provide in assisting with the preparation of part two of form 8609. Right. So it's very common 
for, for myself and our partners, Mike, to get engaged to prepare part two. I mean, part, it, the form is a tax form, so it aligns perfectly with what we do on a day-to-day -day -day basis, which is prepare a tax form. So we get engaged in part two. It's very common. As part of that process as a value add service, we review part one because we have seen errors, human errors made in part one. And this is the time and opportunity to get those things fixed now, as opposed to before they're sent off to the IRS. And that part one, being prepare part one, you review part one to see if the state maybe made an error, or the allocated agency made an error preparing part one and try to get it corrected. And then you assist in the preparation of part two, which is the, the part that the taxpayer is responsible for. Correct. So you gave an overview of part one and part two in general, maybe you could be a little bit more specific and talk about some of the areas in part one and part two that a developer or property owner should be paying particularly close attention to and go at a really high level here because then we can dig back down and subsequent questions on the details of each one. Right. So where I focus on and where I think developers should focus on, I'll separate it by the parts. So for part one, it would be line 1A, the date of allocation. Line 1B, the amount of credits. Some would say that's probably the most important line. <laughs> line 3B, the 130% boost under the DDA QCT provisions. And line 5, the place and service date. For part two, there's... The areas I mainly focus on, although all of them are important, is line seven, eligible basis, line eight A, the original qualified basis building at the close of the first year. Line eight B is the multiple building election. That is an area where we spend a lot of time on. 10 A, which is the election to, to, to begin the, the credit period or to defer to the next year. And line 10 C, the minimum set aside election. So great, thank you for that overview. So let's start with the, the four lines of part one that you mentioned, the part that the credit out of the agency completes. First up there with those four lines, you mentioned was line 1A, which identifies the date of the allocation. What are the keys to getting that date right? So if it was off, what concerns might the developer have? Right, and so the reason why I look at that and we look at that is there is a, for 9% deals, there's a timely place and service requirement. And as part of that math, if you will, it really is comparing the date of allocation to the place and service date. Both of those data points are on the form in part one. And so I want to make sure the data allocation compared to the place and service date, it is not only accurate, but it, it's meeting the test. And I have seen situations where the date of allocation through human error is noted as a year earlier. So same day and month, but a year earlier. And the story that tells is that the project was not timely placed in service. So I look at that to make sure that is accurate. And are there any particular aspects of that date with respect to a bond finance transaction versus a 9% transaction? No, there is not. Okay. So the second line you mentioned was line 1B which is the maximum housing credit dollar. Aside from the obvious, making sure that the credit you were expecting to get is on that line, is there anything else to pay attention to? Surprisingly, no, but because <laughs> I'm doing a podcast on the form, I, I, I struggled with, well, how do I not talk about the amount of credits, that line? So no, I, I've never seen an error 
I've never seen something wrong or a pitfall. I think that developers would catch that on their own and just you're, you're making sure it's the amount that you were expecting. So the third line you mentioned was line 3B, which relates to the high cost area provisions of section 42. What do you want to highlight about that? Right. So what I wanted to highlight about that is if you, if the project does qualify for the 130% the boost, high cost provision, DDA, QCT boost, make sure that the box is checked and it shows 100, 130% there. I have seen situations where on a 9% deal that has excess eligible basis and mathematically doesn't need the 130% boost to generate their reser reservation amount of credits. I've seen in that situation, not common, but I've seen it where the, the box wasn't checked and it just showed 100% instead of 130%. And I look at that and I go, well, first off, it's not accurate. And second off, the developer would be motivated to get to show the boost because it almost provides some level of audit assurance, if you will, but future years, because you have more excess basis in years where if you have a down unit or an over income unit that can help mitigate potential recapture. So that's why I look at that and to make sure if you have it, make sure it's presented correctly. No, that's an important factor. I've seen that as well, where the, that's not needed. So they think, well, why bother? And you want to bother because it can help avoid losing some credits in the situations that you mentioned, as well as others. So last, but uh, certainly not least of the part one lines that you mentioned was line five identifies the date the building was placed in service. What did you want to highlight about that line? So yeah, a couple things. So I've seen situations where that date is using the certificate of occupancy date rather than the temporary certificate of occupancy date. And so generally speaking, probably, probably in all cases, really the developer would be motivated to use the TCO. Not only is it accurate, that's what you're supposed to use if the building is ready for its intended use, but you know, you can, there's other reasons for that. It's such as having a TCO dated December 1st and a CFO dated December 5th means you, you can take credits for December because you have that TCO dated December 1st, which is required. You have to have one full month before you can start credits. And so you don't want to turn in, you, know, you want to be able to take advantage of that. So you can make sure you can start the credits where they should be started. And that's the main thing I wanted to emphasize there is where I see this, some developers will turn in their place and service package, the CFO, instead of the TCO, if they received a TCO and the state doesn't know that there was a TCO. And so that's how that number or line five can get populated incorrectly. You know, that's a good point about the TCO date versus the final certificates of occupancy. And because obviously you want to claim the, start claiming the credits, generally speaking, as soon as you can. So the TCO would be the earlier date. And the TCO is commonly used, a temporary occupancy is commonly used as the, demonstrating the date where the property is ready for its intended purpose. That's when depreciation starts. It has a consequence that becomes the place and service date for light tech purposes. I would note though, that you have to be careful. This is really isn't about the 86 and nine, but as just for the benefit of our listeners, I have seen temporary certificates of occupancy that were limiting occupancy such that it didn't meet the test for tax purposes of being the place and service date. So it's something that you want to make sure it's not, you don't just look at it. This is for the developer. I know you know this, Craig, 
Right. Uh, but for our developers listening and others, you want to make sure you read if there's any conditions to the certificate of occupancy, the temp temporary C owed such that you, you do meet the requirements of tax law for it to be the, the bright line, if you will, or the evidence date placed in service. Right. So now let's move on to part two of the form. And that's the area where the developer has to populate various entries, numerical entries, as well as check boxes to determine what elections they do or don't want to make. And then first up in your list was line seven, which asked for the eligible basis of a building. Basis is generally speaking, depreciable basis of a building. How complicated can that be? It can be very complicated what eligible basis is. The good news is the eligible basis, by the time the developer receives 8609 to populate the part two, you've already had audited final cost certification, which will have your eligible basis. Where I see errors in populating line seven eligible basis of part two is not showing the excess, the excess eligible basis. I've seen that happen and it follows along the thought I was mentioning earlier with the EA. If you got it, show it. And so show the excess. And when the definition of eligible basis is, it also includes the DDA QCT. So that is baked into the definition. So it's accurate to include that in addition to any excess eligible basis you have. So I just wanted to make that point there. That's what I see. Sometimes it's shorting it because it, for the similar reasons, but it, you shouldn't do that. One of the things that we won't get into in the podcast here, but it kind of ties in also to reviewing part one. The part one, as you noted, has the tax credits per building. And then part two, you're reporting your eligible basis per building. And it's it, all that's not done just based upon the number of buildings. If you had a million dollars of allocation and 10 buildings, you wouldn't just have necessarily have hundred thousand across all the buildings because some buildings get more units than others. So you do have to end up looking at the allocation of the credits among the buildings and then the eligible basis among the buildings. Like I said, that's probably closer to the cost segregation podcast that you were no, that, before. That, that's a fair point. All of the cost certs that I've audited really just does it, at, audits it as a whole. And so it doesn't show it if it's a multiple building project, how to slice up the eligible basis between the projects. So that is another exercise. You're right during the part two preparing that needs to be completed as well as how to allocate the eligible basis between the various 86 lines. So the second line that you listed was 8A, which asked for the original qualified basis of the building at the close of the first year of the credit period. So maybe here you can talk about the, how qualified basis is different than eligible basis and why it's focused on qualified basis the close of the first year of the credit period. Right. So the qualified basis, although similar, it's, it uses eligible basis as part of its computation and it'll, it'll multiply, it, it'll include whether or not the project is hundred percent affordable. If it's something less, it'll use that percentage that, that it's not, not affordable as well into that computation. So your qualified basis in theory could be less than your eligible basis if you're not hundred percent affordable, but I don't see any errors there. The point I wanted to highlight for the new developers in the industry is that it's measured at the end of the first year of the credit period. So there's just that little nuance there that it's, it's measured December 31st, if you're a calendar year taxpayer. And so that's the only kind of nuance there. I'll also point out there is some COVID relief relating to units leased up 
in the second year and its role in whether or not there's recapture or not, which we have in other webinars. Yeah, the COVID relief dealing with the measuring your qualified base at the end of the first year of the credit period definitely is a bit involved. I would just note to our developers that if you're not, if you're 100% low-income development, you're not 100% leased by the end of the first year that you place the building in service or by the end of the year after you place the building in service, you should be looking into this COVID relief to see if for purposes of making this calculation, you get to count units that were leased after the end of the first year of your credit period. Any more I just said there has a lot of complexities to it, but I think it was accurate. It's just the key there being that if you're not a hundred percent, if you're a hundred, if you're intending to be a hundred percent affordable and you don't reach that hundred percent occupancy affordability occupancy by the end of the first year of your credit period, then you run the risk of not getting all your credits over 10 years, well, really spill over to 11 and you run the risk of claiming credits over a longer period of time, 15 years, which you're not expecting it's going to lead to tax adjusters, a whole host of bad things can happen, but that's a lot of the planning you'll be doing with your a tax accountant as you're approaching the end of the first year of the credit period. And also when I think of qualified basis, eligible basis, I think of eligible basis as being in, in short, the depreciable basis of each building and the qualified basis of the building is that portion of the building, the basis, the depreciable basis, if you will, that's associated with low-income units. And obviously if you're 100% low-income, then they're the same. But if you're not 100% low-income, if you're a mixed-income development, then it's going to be some percentage, your low-occupancy percentage of your eligible basis. And then of course you have to layer in the 30% boost if you're eligible for that. But let's move on to the, <laughs> to the third line that you wanted to highlight, which was 8B, and that's the election. And something that we get lots of questions from clients about, and you have to decide if you're treating the building as part of a multiple building project or not for purposes of section 42, which kind of ties into, I mean, one of the challenges, if you actually read section 42, the code itself, the times where it talks about building times when it talks about project, and there could be complexities and differing interpretations there, depending upon if you're applying something at the building by building level or a project level. But this is a more tailored focused question where they're asking, are you treating the building as part of a multi-building project? So it can be a potential pitfall how you answer it. So I was thinking, Craig, you could share the significance of that question and maybe any common errors you see. Right. So the significance is it plays a large part in how property is operated because you, you can group buildings into quote unquote projects. And those projects have to be operated together as an aggregate in certain ways. And, or you can choose not to group them, various buildings into a project and they can be kind of looked at separately. And there's pros and cons are, you know, we have various webinars and handbooks about making that decision. Generally speaking, the kind of rule of thumb is if there's multiple buildings and it's a hundred percent affordable project, you're more than likely going to be making the multiple building election. If you're mixed income, you may not be, for instance, one scenario would be in multiple building project, mixed use, but maybe some of the buildings are a hundred percent affordable. You might be, the developer might be inclined to group the hundred percent affordable buildings together in one group to take advantage of some of the pros of making the decision. 
And that way you can take advantage of some of the pros, whereas you maybe won't be able to, if you do that. Um, if you check yes to the question, are there any attachments that you have to provide? Yes. And this is, I'm glad you asked that because of all of the part two certifications and elections, this line eight B, the multiple election is the area where we see the most errors and the most grief, if you will. And the, one of the errors is when you read the instructions, it clearly says, if you want to make this election, you have to attach a statement. If you don't attach the statement, it says if, even if you checked yes on the form, but didn't attach the statement, it's as if you checked no. And that can be really detrimental if you continue to operate as if you checked yes, and you're making all these kind of tenant transfers that are, they're not swaps, they're now treated as new move-ins and a whole host of other issues. And so the point I really want to make here with this line is make sure the election is done correctly, which is to include the statement. We've seen that many times. So maybe just to summarize, generally speaking, clients will treat the developments as one overall project, all the buildings in a single project. They'll answer yes and then attach a statement listing all the buildings as part of a single project, but there can be more nuances, but you want to make sure that you understand the implications of doing something different. Right. Lots of resources to help evaluate that. Right. The other thing I'll just add to is whatever you end up filing to the IRS, make sure the property management company, because sometimes those are third parties are aware of what was elected so that they can make sure they are operating the project in the way that makes sense with the elections. I'm glad that you mentioned that because that's one of the challenges as we keep talking about filling out the form, which you're going these little tangents is I, you can't emphasize enough that whatever is being done with respect to filling out the form 869, make the various elections and all the rest, there are implications as to how the property is managed and you've got to make sure that everyone within the organization that needs to know how to manage the property knows how to manage the property and they know what elections have been made. So obviously a property management company should be reaching out and saying, I need this information. They should know enough to know they need it. But similarly, rather relying on that, you need to make sure that you're giving it to them and conforming with them that they're operating the, the property in a fashion that's consistent with the elections made on the form 869. So that's there. I think there are two others, if I remember here correctly, that you wanted to make sure that we talked about. And they're both parts of line 10. And they're both irrevocable elections. So let's look first at that there's 10A and 10C. Let's talk about 10A, which asks the developer wants to elect to begin the credit period the first year after the building is placed in service. Let me say that again because it's not worded so great on the form. It asks whether the developer wants to elect to begin the credit period the first year after the building is placed in service. And it's a yes or no question. And what should developers be thinking about in how to evaluate answering that yes or no? Right. So the developer is in almost all cases, very motivated to start the credits as soon as possible. And so by default, they're almost always going to want to check. No, I don't want to defer the credits. I want to start it now. But what you need to think about is there is a cliff test. As we all know, there's various cliff tests 
section 42 projects. One of the cliff tests is the minimum set aside tests. And that needs to be met annually, but especially um, at the end of the first year of the credit period. If you're checking no to not defer, you're starting the credits in the current year that it was placed in service. You need to make sure that the project is meeting the minimum set aside test. The other thing to consider is if not fully leased up by December 31st, if you're a calendar year taxpayer, to be debating, ignoring COVID relief, you're going to be debating whether or not to start the credits to defer them. And I think that is a mathematical size where, you know, what's the impact in equity both ways, right? So if you start the credits, but not fully leased up, what does that mean for equity and credit delivery stream? Because remember, ignoring COVID relief, um, any units that become qualified units after year one are subject to the two-thirds credits, what's commonly referred to as the 15-year credit stream. So that's going to have, generally speaking, a negative impact on your on your equity. And you have to weigh that versus delaying the whole to checking yes to defer. So you just, to me, it seems like it's more of a mathematical calculation of where am I better off as a developer right. relating to tax credit equity. Now that makes that perfect sense. And I, where I see it, it tends not to be so much the minimum set aside issue because properties generate hundred percent or 80%. If you're 20% or 40%, then it could, that's going to be affordable. Then it can become more of a cliff effect type of issue. It's generally more the, to have enough basis to claim credits over 10 years. And I say 10 years, but it's really 10 years and spill over 11. Or am I going to claim credits over 15 years? which could have a dramatically adverse effect on your, uh, on your net equity and could lead to a big adjuster calculation. Right. So the other irrevocable election that you mentioned was 10C, but we talked about 10A and 10B and 10C. So it makes me wonder, maybe we should tell the listeners what 10B is. <laughs> so, uh, if you wanted to mention what 10B is, then we can jump to 10C. Yeah, sure. 10B is elect not to treat large partnership as taxpayer. And it's worded almost as fun as the defer the credit period question. And it's not a yes or no, it's just a yes option. I've never, it's very uncommon. Well, first of all, you don't have large partnerships, but that's right. one where if you ended up with a large partnership, which I remember correctly is a hundred partners, right. then you can actually, your recapture rules change. There's a whole host of implications to who has recapture risks and the rest. But everything that we're dealing with are small partnerships. So it's a somewhat irrelevant question. And I must say, I don't know that I've ever worked on a partnership where we were making that election, but I may not be quite right. So the other irrevocable election that we mentioned was 10C, which asked what minimum set aside is being elected. And this is probably when I think about getting private letter ruling requests to correct elections, this is probably the one that I see the most often. And it's something where we get brought in a few years later where the developer was a local developer using a local accountant or something, and they weren't fully aware as to what this meant. And it made an election that was the improper election. So maybe you can unpack the significance of this minimum set aside election, because there's four choices. Maybe you can talk about the four choices and which one do you generally see? Right. Yeah. So there are four choices. It's the 20 at 50 minimum set aside, the 40 at 60. The third one is a new one. It's the new average income election. And the fourth one is the 25 at 60, which is for New York City only projects. Generally speaking, for 
100% affordable projects. It's been at 40, at 60 has kind of been the default for decades. What I wanted to talk about with this line is... Let me just interrupt you there. Just uh, yep. unpack the 2050, 40, 60. The 2050, for the listeners that aren't as experienced, means you're... You have to, there's a, the minimum satellite test is all about setting aside a minimum number of units for long-term occupancy and to be rent restricted and the rest. And it's brought, it's a vestige or they took it from the productivity bond finance rules where it'd be for your bonds to be tax exempt and they're, and when they're used to finance residential rental housing, you have this minimum set aside test and remember there'll be units that set aside for low-income occupancy and it's either 20% of the units at 50% or 40% of the units on a minimum basis being set aside to rent to tenants with income levels at 60% or low. So 20% of the units at income levels 50% or below, 40% of the units at income levels of 60% or below. And when I've seen an error, it's been the prior accountant checks the 2050 thinking it's units, even though the income level is a little bit lower. Whereas the problem with that, of course, is your rents for the entire project are based upon that minimum set aside election subject to other limitations that could be on the property at the state level or the federal level. But, you know, the consequence being that you're agreeing at the 2050 election that all your tenants will be income levels at 50% or below, and your rents will be based upon that 50% level versus your rents being based on the 60% level. And if you're going to be hundred percent affordable, then you're easily going to pass the 40% test. So you want to have the higher rent floor and the higher level qualifying tenants for income at that six level. And once again, subject to other requirements that you, the other commitments you made to the state when applied and received a credit allocation. So sorry for that transgression, but, or that side, that wasn't really a transgression for that further extent. No, it's good. That was good. Especially for developers, they definitely need that context. And the other thing too, Mike, I was going to discuss is, or just bring awareness really, is it used to be three options on this line 10C a couple of, a few years ago, it added a fourth, the fourth being the average income election. There's still, we received industry received final regulations late last year. There's still some emerging kind of issues that need to be kind of worked through in the industry. But some of the chatter within the industry is maybe one day when some of those issues are resolved. The average income election is going to be kind of the default and replace what is now the default being the 40 and 60. So that, that's pretty interesting. I just wanted to bring awareness to the developers. There's that issue out there that, you know, yeah. I definitely think that's a good point because as you noted in the past, there's the 25% and 60 for New York City. But if you're not in New York City, you really had the 46 to the 2050 and clients pretty universally elected the. A 40, 60, even if all their units were going to be rented to tenants at 50% or less. And we don't need to go into all the reasons why, but 40, 60 was pretty universally elected. And I do believe that going forward, once we get guidance from individual credit agencies, guidance that I think is needed just to close any particular risks that, you know, most developers will be electing the average income. And I say that from a federal statutory construction perspective, that most developers will be electing average income at that point, and it could happen within, within 12 months. But I say from the federal perspective, because I have spoken in front of groups before, I'm sure you have as well, where I've made similar observations 
and then developers will say, but <laughs> I don't, they'll say, I don't agree. And I'll kind of go through all the reason why at the federal level, that's the overlay. And they'll point out that some states might say, in order to elect this, you have to agree to certain other things. And that's kind of the assumption when I make that general default comment is some states might say you can only elect average income if you agree to do certain other things. And some developers may not be able to be positioned to do those other things. So they want to elect average income. So, but, but for the state restricting your ability to elect it, and I think there's a lot of compelling reasons why average income is a, provides more insurance against future loss of credits than the 4060 does. Let's move on from that. I appreciate you going through and highlighting the key parts of part one and part two that developers should pay particularly close attention to, but obviously there's, there's other parts of the forum that need to be attended to as well. But I hope this isn't the case, but I wouldn't be surprised if someone listening to this podcast says to themselves, that's an interesting point. And they go back and look at their 86 and nines and they discover that they actually made an error on their form 8609. And I mentioned in the intro about the importance of if you file, a, if you find an error, you need to go and approach the IRS and get a private letter request before you're under audit to see if you can correct the error in the election. So if you could describe the, you know, why you have to do it for you go under audit for a partnership and maybe describe the process of getting a private letter ruling request, getting a private letter ruling as well. Right. No, it's it. I'm glad we're discussing this because I, what I don't want is I don't want developers to find ear and then they look at the amount it costs to do a private letter ruling and walk away with, well, I'll just do the private letter ruling, you know, when the IRS audits me and when you read the private letter rules, you generally cannot do a private letter ruling once you're audited. So I don't want people to think you can just do it when the IRS is auditing you. So if you have to say that, and it makes sense because the IRS doesn't want that either. The IRS is saying if you, right. if you made it a wrong election and you identified it before we started auditing you and you want to correct it, we've got a process to go through. And if you meet the various requirements, you can change or otherwise irrevocable election. But once we start the audit, game over on that front. Right. So I wanted to emphasize that. And I agree. It does make sense regarding the process. The, as you mentioned, the amount of professional fees associated with this, it's a very formal process. It's quite lengthy. So I didn't want to get into the nuances of the process. Other it. It's very formal. Okay. Uh, the other point I'd like to make is I also wouldn't think of it's a given that you'll get the request, the, the ruling that you want. So facts and circumstances clearly play a large role in the private letter ruling request and how the IRS will respond to that. No, I agree with that. And a lot of times the private letter ruling is all about a transaction or something you want to do and you want to get clearance from the IRS as to what the treatment will be when there's an area that you have a particular concern about. But the private letter rulings where we're dealing with correcting an error of an election, there, there's a pretty high success rate. Yeah. Clear that it was an error because you have so many other documents that document what you intended, that you, there's a very high success rate. And we see 
all the time, different proper low ruling requests. If you go to our website, you'll see lots of PLRs correcting elections that were made in error. So you can, and there's, and there's also a pre-conference process with a private letter ruling request where you get a good sense as to which direction the IRS is headed. So I think that you, and the issues that we're talking about here, there'd be a high success rate, but yeah. you point out not a universal success rate. <laughs> Correct. And it's all about, it's all about preparing it and using experienced professionals so they know the right questions. They understand what the IRS is looking for. So you can make it as easy on the IRS as possible. So before we close, I can't help but ask just a more general question. What other advice would you share with developers about Form 86 and I? And this um, is if you plug the webinar, because <laughs> that's obviously yeah. a must listen. So definitely the deeper dive webinar Wayne and I did last month to get just kind of into the weeds and trenches, if you will, of some of these issues. And then just to recap, mistakes can be very costly. Take your time when you review the form and have multiple parties re review the form as well, including your CPA. A great point about multiple parties within the client. Definitely it's hard to catch your own ear. Yes. And it's also one where we talked earlier about making sure the property management team gets the 86 to nine after you've made the elections, but really they should be involved in making the elections. <laughs> yes. They should be aware of what you're completing on the form and they should be a group that reviews it before filing them. So thank you, Craig. As I mentioned, I'll include a link to the webinar recording in today's show notes. And please do stick around, Craig, for off mic section of the podcast, where I'm gonna ask, ask you some fun off topic questions. So you can share some of your words of wisdom or advice to our listeners. Please be sure to tune into next week's podcast. It's another great topic for affordable housing developers. On the podcast, my partner, Rich Larson will be my guest. And we're going to talk about the rental assistance demonstration or RAD program. And more specifically, we're going to cover some hot topics. RAD, as you may know, is a HUD program that helps finance the construction, rehabilitation, and preservation of affordable rental housing through the conversion of public housing. RAD's a particularly timely topic and opportunity for developers. And I say that because with higher interest rates, I think that there'll be somewhat less new construction being financed through productivity bonds, which creates a great opportunity for the RAD program to access productivity bonds to finance the acquisition and rehabilitation of public housing. You want to make sure that you don't miss that episode. And now I'm pleased to reach our off mic section. It's a fun way for listeners to get some tips and recommendations from our guests. And I have a couple of questions for you, Craig. I'll, the first one is, and it's one that I love asking, and it's timely for the new year, not just for tax accounts heading into a busy season, but also for everyone who has New Year's resolutions. What's your favorite productivity hack? Oh, that's a good one. So my favorite productivity hack is by far, and it's kind of new for me somewhat, I've really just kind of taken it to another level, is there's so much software out there for automating various redundant tasks. And so I won't give the software I use some free publicity, but the one I currently use, I send out certain emails to clients and, or even internally when certain things happen, like 
a box is checked or this is checked and it's all automated so that, you know, there's some logic built into that software where if this is checked, send this email and blah, blah, blah. So taking advantage of the software out there today has been a huge productivity hack. Now, I appreciate that. As many listeners know, I do that through Outlook in terms of, you know, various incoming emails automatically going different places and the rest. And I'm constantly in search of things like that to <laughs> automate. So that's a good tip. So my other question is what book you would recommend that listeners add to their reading list? I think I've mentioned in prior podcasts that the one thing COVID did for me has got me back on the reading train and I really kind of enjoyed that. So I always like asking guests this question so I know what book they're adding, they are adding to my reading list. <laughs> I read it already. <laughs> well, I don't know if you'll be adding the books I recommend, Mike. So the books that I recommend is geared towards parents of toddlers. Um, uh, uh, okay, those are the, the right. That's those are the books I, I've been reading as of late. We've been reading the Berenstein Bear books. Those have held up quite well. So we're reading those at story time every night. Okay, Berenstein Bear, you are correct. I will. I uh, <laughs> will uh, be reading those, <laughs> but it's not because I haven't read them. <laughs> right. right. It's because I probably haven't read all of them, but I have read a large of the books. So that's a good recommendation. Yep. I will also say there's another children's book that I actually has become something that is like a lesson for me. And it's a book called Give a Pig a Pancake. And it's all about they give a pig a pancake and then they want syrup and you give them syrup and then they need a plate and then it just kind of goes through all the things that happen when you just start by giving a pig a pancake and there's large part large things in life where you think about it and you're like well i do this one little thing think of all these derivative things that are going to happen so i'll give you that to read to add to your reading list thank you we will we will put that in the rotation i have heard put that. It in the rotation yeah <laughs> so thank you again craig and to our listeners mike novogratik thanks for listening this weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit 2.0.